Hello everyone, my name is Annalise Ferellen and I'd like to welcome you back to the Salon podcast series, part two of the Decolonizing Art History episode. All right, so in part one, we discussed a few of the many systemic ways in which settler colonialism continues to pervade the contemporary art history pedagogy. However, we've discussed how this narrow and oversimplified version of art history has been challenged by certain Canadian universities, which we have seen through the case studies on Carleton and Trent University. These case studies of the educational institutions have shown that these two universities actively work towards indigenizing curricula and encourage to employ art as a means of reimagining and rethinking the Eurocentric white and Western narratives that continue to pervade current pedagogies. So now that we've assessed the ways in which universities can and have successfully challenged art history settler colonial pedagogy in part one of the episode, Part two will complete a case study on the efforts made by Canadian museums. My goal is to draw your attention to the power museums hold in relation to the public's exposure to art and how this power to educate can enrich the very discipline of art history without reinforcing colonial forms of knowledge. Before we delve into a case study of Canada's National Gallery, let's take a moment to think about how museums can undergo a process of decolonization. Perhaps it would be helpful to briefly discuss how the very institution of the museum stems from colonial origins. Museums collect art, and today art is usually donated to or bought by museums. In the past, however, museums acquired their art collection through looting instigated by colonization. Most of the largest and world-famous museums in Europe, for example, such as the Louvre in Paris and the British Museum in London, are in fact filled with stolen art within the framework of exploitation that colonization fostered. So the very identity, the legacy of the museum as an institution is colonial. Today, however, many museums are grappling with the systemic issue and are trying to find productive and effective ways in which they can come to terms with their colonial past and present. One of the ways in which museums in Europe have set out to nuance their colonial identity is to pledge to acknowledge the colonial methods of acquisition and to in turn repatriate the stolen cultural heritage artifacts. In 2018, for example, French President Emmanuel Macron publicly promised the definitive restitution of the Benin bronzes back to Nigeria and explicitly condemned France's illegal and violent confiscation of them. His public promise resulted from a 2018 released report commissioned by the French Ministry of Culture titled The Restitution of African Cultural Heritage toward a new relational ethics. In this significant report, the colonial history of the Benin bronzes and an acknowledgement of France's complicity in not only the pillaging and plundering of the royal palace in Benin, 
but also an acknowledgement of the many lives that were lost at the hands of French soldiers is explicitly addressed. This report is widely available to the public. Just this past November, France publicly returned 26 artifacts, which had been violently seized by French soldiers in 1892, back to its former colony, Nigeria. Furthermore, the French museums that currently house the remainder of the stolen Benin artifacts have nuanced the wall texts and labels that describe the art by explicitly addressing the violent looting that caused the art to be displayed in France today instead of Nigeria. And so even though the 2018 French report stated that approximately 46,000 artifacts stolen by France could qualify for repatriation to Nigeria, and France has only returned a mere 26 so far, no other European country has demonstrated similar extensive efforts to decolonize its museums. And so therefore, we can say that France has led the charge in the project of restitution of stolen cultural property and is paving a way towards decolonization of museums in Europe. I do want to briefly note that the United Kingdom and Belgium are also currently within the process of having to face their colonial past with regards to their museums. But these two countries have yet to follow France's footsteps and actually hand over the stolen artifacts. I hope this brief case study of France has helped explain one of the ways in which museums can actively participate in decolonization, namely through the public and honest acknowledgement of the provenance of the art housed in their museums and the repatriation of that stolen art. What else can be done? Let's return to Canada now. Do we see evidence of efforts made by museums towards decolonization? How do Canadian museums approach this? Is Indigenous art genuinely included in the museum? and not merely as tokens? Is an honest, thorough, and authentic representation of Indigenous art respected in Canadian museums? Who are the curators who pick and choose the art that is displayed on the walls and exposed to the public? Are they experts in Indigenous art? While there are many Canadian museums we could talk about today and assess how they each individually approach the systemic remnants of settler colonialism, a case study of Canada's National Gallery could be the most telling, I think. Founded in 1880 and open to the public since 1988, the National Gallery is located in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. The National Gallery of Canada constitutes as one of the largest museums in North America in terms of exhibition space and houses over 93,000 works of art in their permanent collection and displays traveling exhibitions too. In June 2017, the museum opened its brand new Canadian and Indigenous galleries. The galleries display over 800 works of art from the museum's permanent collection of Canadian and Indigenous artists. 
These works of art include photographs along with loans of historical indigenous sculptures and objects by Inuit, Métis, and First Nation artists. These galleries therefore function as a Canadian art survey exhibition, permanently on display now at the museum. According to the National Gallery's director and CEO, Mark Mayer, the museum has, quote, worked closely with partner institutions and Indigenous communities to create a meaningful display representative of Canada's unique diversity and heritage, end quote. In addition to the creation of a specially designated permanent space for Indigenous art, the National Gallery has ensured that the galleries were born out of an authentic representation of Indigenous art experts. The museum has created two Indigenous advisory committees of curators, academics, knowledge keepers to provide the galleries with, quote, expertise and guidance, end quote. It is also important to mention here that the galleries are very much accessible. The wall texts accompanying the works of art have been written in many different indigenous languages. The museum also stipulates that the consultation with the indigenous advisory committees will continue beyond the planning of the galleries and will be called upon to help with educational activities and events the museums may wish to organize in the future. These efforts on behalf of the NGC are remarkable. The designated space for Indigenous art to be displayed on its own, not merely pushed aside into one room amongst the many European art collections, is remarkable. This recent opening of the Canadian and Indigenous galleries can be compared to how Trent and Carleton University have created courses specifically on Indigenous art history, courses in which the indigenous art history is the sole subject of the class, and not just a generalized reductive chapter on a syllabus. This case study on Canada's National Gallery, I hope, has given you a sense of what national galleries can do to participate in increasing the exposure of indigenous art history to the public, thereby making indigenous art part of the quote-unquote, mainstream art history displayed in Canada. So while the museum as an institution originates from colonial origins, collecting looted art, it does possess an undeniable power in educating the public and exposing the public to art they may never have seen before or perhaps even considered before. So by creating this permanent, large space for Indigenous artists to be celebrated and displayed to the public, Canada's National Gallery is taking significant steps to acknowledge and recognize the importance of Indigenous art history within Canada and to explicitly challenge the Eurocentric emphases and preferences that have too often defined the selection of art displayed in museums today. We are nearing the end of the episode on decolonizing art history. I truly hope you have found these subjects interesting, but before we say goodbye, I would very much like to leave you with a few takeaways from these two episodes. In part one, 
we reviewed a few examples of how settler colonialism's remnants continue to pervade the pedagogy of art history within the settings of universities. And upon reflecting on the efforts made by Carleton and Trent University, two Canadian institutions that are ironically not considered to make the top ranking of Canadian universities in terms of offering quality education, I think it is clear that land-based education wins. As both universities work closely with the local Indigenous communities, Indigenous realities are centered and recognized as core factors in the education that is offered. Additionally, those universities' approach of land education, so that is a close collaboration with the in local Indigenous communities that help shape and guide the education on Indigenous history, effectively addresses and challenges the remnants of settler colonialism head-on. Land education, according to Eve Tuck, quote, reminds people to place indigenous understandings of land and life at the center of issues, provides an explicit critique and rendering of settler colonialism, treaties, and sovereignty, and inspires acts of refusal, reclamation, regeneration, and reimagination, end quote. Hopefully, we can soon see other universities follow the charge led by Carleton and Trent University and see more institutions making meaningful and effective efforts to provide an education to their students that challenges and deconstructs the Eurocentric Western white curricula. In part two, we discussed in which specific ways the institution of the museum can partake in the decolonization indigenizing project. Through a brief case study of France, we have seen how European museums grapple and face their colonial past and reality. Here, efforts include the honest acknowledgement of the art's colonial acquisition and the restitution and repatriation of stolen artifacts to former colonies. Finally, we assessed Canada's latest efforts to bring Indigenous art as an essential part into its National Gallery's core permanent collection, thereby presenting an art history that is more authentic, transnational, global. Well, now we have officially come to the end of the episode on decolonizing art history. I want to thank you very much for tuning in. And if you're interested in the journals, articles, and books that I've consulted to create this episode, I kindly invite you to look at the episode's description box as I have included a complete bibliography there. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time!